Yeah, China from the beginning positioned itself in opposition to the U.S. view. The U.S. often talks about cyberspace as being free, open, global, and interoperable. And the Chinese, uh, almost from the beginning when they connected to the internet for the first time, argued that why would we think about the internet as being you know, somehow some space uh, free from government regulation? Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Indio Frank, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Julia Ahn. The development and popularization of the internet and cyberspace fundamentally changed the world. With information readily available at the click of a button, it was championed by many that the internet would lead to the end of authoritarianism and the beginning of a global liberal order. Evidently, the reality is much different. Cyberspace has become an important tool of foreign policy for every state, from espionage to defense to hacking. Different states have regulated the internet within their borders differently, producing an increasingly fragmented global internet, as opposed to the globally open one that was envisioned several years ago. So, in a world where cyberspace is weaponized and cybersecurity is of utmost importance to national security, how do states maintain national sovereignty? Is a global, open, and resilient internet still a possibility, or is it a pipe dream? Joining us today to discuss these questions and more is Dr. Adam Siegel. Adam Siegel is the Ira A. Lutman Chair in Emerging Technologies and National Security and Director of the Digital and Cyberspace Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. An expert on security issues, technology development, and Chinese domestic and foreign policy, he currently writes for the blog Net Politics, and his work has appeared in the Financial Times, the New York Times, Foreign Policy, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. All right, Dr. Siegel, thank you so much for joining us in the podcast today. Uh, my pleasure to be here. So just to get us started, what is included in the definition of cyberspace? And did cyberspace come into existence with the invention of the internet? Yeah, so it's a pretty expansive definition. In, in one study, there was something like 22 or 24 different definitions of cyberspace. Um, but I, I use a fairly simple one, which is just the, the global network of interconnected information technology that, and the information that's stored on it. So the devices and all the data that uh, is uh, transported uh, uh, globally. Um, I would say that the cyberspace and the internet are not the same thing, um, but certainly um, the creation of first ARPANET uh, and then the internet uh, uh, is what gave us the, the base of, uh, of cyberspace. So with those definitions in mind, can you tell us a little bit about what cyber operations are? What are cyber attacks? And what are some of the earliest examples of them being used between states? Yeah, I think it's uh, one way to uh, think about it is to divide cyberspace into three level, three layers. Um, so we have a, a kind of a hardware layer, a software layer, and then an information layer. Um, hardware is kind of all of the networks and computers um, that, su- that support the software. So the software, of course, is the code and the programs that we use. Uh, and then the final layer is the information on it and the identi- identities we um, uh, portray on, uh, on the internet um, and kind of the cognitive factor. And so what we've seen is that um, you, can, you can hack all three of those levels um, with, with um, the devices or the hardware. You can try to uh, get in through back doors or um, uh, uh, um, uh, tap into to other networks with the software you can 
put in specific code or put in malware. And then on the information side, you can, you know, portray yourself to be someone or something that you're not uh, and try to affect people's opinions and, and ideas. Um, so some of the, you know, the, the early hacking that we know about, um, you know, very early case that, that is um, described uh, in a kind of a classic of information security is uh, called the cuckoo's nest. Uh, it involves some hackers from uh, Russia and um, uh, the Stasi, right? So East Germany. Um, and it involved trying to get into U.S. networks. And it was basically discovered because of kind of differences in billing because, you know, you had to pay for how much time you were using online at the time. But then we had uh, attacks um, like Moonlight Maze, which was a Russian uh, espionage attack, uh, Titan Rain, also a, a Chinese espionage attack. So most of the attacks that we know of and have seen uh, are espionage, stealing uh, data for political, military, or industrial uh, reasons. Uh, a few disruptive attacks and, and very rare destructive attacks. Are cyber operations much different once they include non-state actors? And how has the introduction of cyber operations in general in the international sphere changed the relationship between non-actors and states? Yeah, I, I think when people first started thinking about cyberspace and hacking, there was a sense that you know non-state actors you know, the stereotypical uh, hacker with a hoodie in, in, in the basement were going to be kind of radically empowered and, and, and really challenge states. Um, you know, you had movies like Die Hard 4 where you know, the, the individual hacker is causing, uh, you know, chemical factories to explode and airplanes to drop out of the sky and that kind of thing. But I think what we've seen is that, you know, yes, individual hackers on the especially on the criminal side, are very skilled and, and you know, certainly uh, are wor- um, cause millions of dollars in damage on the crime side, but um, are not actually as powerful as state hackers. Um, when you look at, you know, for example, one of the most famous hacks, the Stuxnet attack on uh, the, the centrifuges uh, at Natanz to slow down the Iranian nuclear program, the capabilities that were required to, to plan and implement that attack are, are really something only a nation state can put together. So I don't think it's actually radically changed the balance between non-state and state actors. I think what it's done is uh, actually empower uh, states that were already pretty strong. So up until like 20 or so years ago, cyberspace was pretty uncharted territory. So, you know, in the past couple, you know, several years, what, so how, like, what are the global norms around cyberspace and cyber operations between countries that have developed in those years? And has norm setting fallen behind the fast developing uh, abilities of the internet? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think the norm setting has not kept pace. Um, you know, the, a lot of people like to refer to the internet as the the Wild West and there's no rules. That that actually is not the case. But what has slowly happened over kind of the last decade is a set of norms of behavior has emerged from a, from a UN process known as the group of government experts. Um, and that has involved uh, kind of a growing number of uh, discussions. I think it started off with 15 and then it went up to 20 and 25 representing uh, important countries in this space. Um, and then they had a series of reports, consensus reports that, 
identified a series of, of norms and there's about 11 um, and some of the important ones include the norm of state responsibility so you should take responsibility uh, for attacks that come from your territory uh, norm of assistance so if uh, someone's being attacked and they ask for help um, uh, a norm not to attack a computer emergency response team so similar to how we have in the in the kinetic world not to attack the, the Red Cross, uh, a norm of non-interference in critical infrastructure during peacetime. So don't uh, in, interfere. That word was chosen kind of very um, precisely, uh, which means you can still kind of hack and, and perhaps even spy on that critical infrastructure, but you shouldn't cause any disruption or destruction. So uh, most of the countries, you know, important players in this space have signed off on those norms. Now we can kind of question if they've followed them, in particular, the norm of state responsibility. You know, there's been a lot of um, U.S. pressure on Russia to hack, uh, ra- uh, excuse me, to, to arrest um, ransomware hackers, um, which, you know, Russia is, is, has not been doing. Um, and so that, that norm, of course, hasn't been really fully um, implemented. Um, but there has been some progress. But as you said, it's clearly not keeping pace with with the developments in cyber operations. So earlier you talked a little bit about how espionage was a main form of um, example of cyber operation or attack between states. And I want to delve a little bit more into the state to state interaction. So first, is espionage still the main form of um, cyber operation when it's being used as a tool of foreign policy? Or are countries using cyber operations now in different ways? And do the types of regimes, such as, for example, democracy versus authoritarian, does that factor into what types of um, tools they use? Yeah, I, I, th- I think the, the vast majority still remains to be uh, espionage. Now, we don't really know for sure. For example, the council uh, does uh, try to maintain a, a public record of all the known uh, state-based operations. Uh, called the Cyber Operations Tracker, and, and in that, um, the vast majority are espionage. But you know, we are dealing with the publicly known attacks and and you know publicly reported. So there could be, and I suspect there are lots of um, operations that we just don't know about that have never been reported. That said, I still think that the vast majority are are um, cyber operations. Now it's an interesting question. We know that. You know, d- democracies and authoritarian states have kind of radically dis- different conceptions about how cyberspace should be uh, governed, how open it should be, who should have a say in its governance. Uh, and then on the operations side, uh, I would say we, we, we do see some, you know, important differences. You know, we certainly see um, that um, uh, the authoritarian states uh, seem more willing to um, engage in um, uh, certain types of information operations, so uh, hacking and doxing, and then uh, perhaps uh, posting it on social media and using bots and others to, to spread misinformation and disinformation. Uh, there seems uh, in the authoritarian states a, a greater willingness uh, to blend um, and rely on proxies uh, so, uh, you know, in, the, in most liberal democracies, cyber forces are kind of tightly controlled in the military or in the intelligence services. Um, from the little bit we know about how 
um, in the U.S. how cyber operations are planned and, and executed. You know, there, there is certainly tight control, and under the Obama administration, the president had to sign off on most major operations that that was pushed down to the combatant commanders under President Trump. But we still know, that, you know, there's kind of a tight legal control. But in the you know Iran, Russia, China, North Korea, there's uh, greater willingness to rely on proxies, uh, criminal hackers, and a kind of lower threshold for the use of those uh, forces. And with that in mind, do you think the current standards of cybersecurity, are they enough to combat the growing cyber threats around the world? I remember reading an article, um, I think on foreign affairs or foreign policy, where they talked about how experts now think that North Korean hackers might be even more of a danger to global security than their rockets. Um, so yeah, are current standards of cybersecurity enough now? Uh, I mean, clearly no, right? We keep on getting hit by more and more disruptive uh, attacks. And so, you know, both there's a kind of the set of standards that have to be implemented at home uh, and then what we're trying to do internationally. So internationally, we've kind of already touched on some of the norms, uh, but there's also other tools like sanctions, which haven't been all that effective and naming and shaming. So attribution also hasn't been all that effective, but those are some of the tools that we've used on the international level. And then domestically, you know, you, you, um, what you're trying to do is, is both kind of balance um, the incentives for the private sector to invest more uh, and, and invest in the right things. Um, how much government regulation do you need? What should the government set the standards? Should it be um, developed uh, by the private sector? And, you know, uh, certain different nations have different responses to it. it you know, in the U.S., um, there was a long kind of resistance to government regulation, the argument being, um, that that would stifle innovation and that would uh, would be uh, slow to react to changes in uh, the threats, um, and so we had voluntary standards uh, under the under the NIST, the National Institute of Science uh, Standards and Technology, um, that were developed in kind of discussions with the private sector. Uh, we're beginning to see some changes under the Biden administration, right? So. Um, for example, the president had an executive order that requires um, uh, government contractors to, to notify the government if they've, if they've been breached. Uh, we've seen new standards uh, come out of uh, the TSA, which regulates uh, cybersecurity in the railway and uh, uh, other critical infrastructure sectors. So there's been some movement on that front to a more regulatory uh, framework for, for cybersecurity. Um, so you've already mentioned a little bit what the United States is doing domestically to maintain security, like cybersecurity. Um, can you expand a little bit more on what the United States is doing um, on an international scale too to maintain influence and security in cyberspace? And also what additional steps you recommend on top of what the U.S. has already been doing? Yeah, so I, I think the, you know, the U.S., um, uh, is engaged on se on several fronts. So we talked about the norms front, which was the U.S. has been very uh, engaged in the group of government experts. Um, the U.S., um, uh, along with uh, many of its partners, in particular the Five Eye partners, so you know its intelligence partners among the U.K., uh, Australia, uh, and Canada, um, has been uh, active in attributing attacks to. Russia, China, uh, North Korea, and Iran, uh, and then uh, sanctioning uh, either the the actors or the or 
tech companies that supported those actors. And this is an attempt to try and you know, draw some red lines and, and um, uh, describe how the U.S. will, will respond. Um, and this is, um, you know, expanded a little bit beyond the five eyes, NATO and the EU uh, and others have participated in some of these uh, campaigns of naming, shaming of attribution and, and, and sanctions. Uh, the U.S. is uh, working with its allies pretty closely. So between the Quad, right, the working of uh, India, Japan, uh, uh, Australia and the U.S. has a cyber norms and cyber governance group. Uh, the U.S. EU Technology and Trade Commission also has a cyber discussion. Um, so doing it also bilaterally uh, and, and multilaterally. And China is a major example of a country whose vision of cyberspace differs drastically from that of the United States. I know you work a lot in the realm of China-U.S. relations and cyberspace. So I wanted to ask you, could you first walk our audience through what are the differences right now between China's and the United States' visions of cyberspace and its role in international affairs? Yeah, China from the beginning um, kind of uh, positioned itself in opposition to the U.S. view, right? So when the the U.S. often talks about cyberspace as being, it should be uh, free, open, global, and interoperable. Um, so free flow of information, everyone should be able to access it. Uh, you should be able to plug in uh, at the edges and innovate from there, uh, and, it, and it should be secure. And the, and the Chinese, uh, almost from the beginning when they connected to the Internet for the first time, argued that, you know, why would the why would we think about the internet as being, you know, somehow some space uh, free from government regulation where governments are going to regulate it uh, like they regulate everything that they come into contact with. And that, and then that's every state's uh, right. And so they have promoted an idea of what they call cyber sovereignty, which is, you know, you, you can regulate cyberspace and everyone uh, should come to the table as equal um, partners. And you shouldn't criticize other countries for, um, uh, uh, the access uh, for the for what they do uh, in, in cyberspace. The other component is a kind of a, a, a real vision on when you talk about the negotiation of cyberspace or the, the norms around it, the U.S. has uh, uh, argued that a lot of the governance should happen through what's called the multi-stakeholder model. So a kind of bottom-up, private sector-led, uh, heavily reliant on technology and uh, technical experts um, and the Chinese have said, well, we, that system's okay, but most of the negotiations should happen at a multilateral level between states and at the UN. Uh, and so the two have been kind of opposed um, in, those, uh, in those two ways. Um, so um, cybersecurity in particular has become a, a, a high priority for uh, Xi Jinping when he, soon after he came into office, uh, he gave a speech saying that you know, cybersecurity was national security. Uh, he um, uh, created uh, a new small commission, uh, which is a kind of a top leadership group on cybersecurity security, and created a new agency, the Cyberspace Administration of China. Um, and then over the last five years, we've just seen a, a very aggressive rolling out of new cybersecurity laws, data security laws, uh, 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 personal information protection law, uh, all of which are, you know, uh, primarily focused domestically, but have an international effect. They 
They both affect um, foreign companies inside of China and how they operate, but also have a demonstration effect as other countries think about, you know, how should we shape our cybersecurity measures? Uh, and they look at models and they, you know, they, a lot of countries before were looking at, at Europe and the, and the GDPR in particular, uh, but uh, now are also borrowing parts of it from China. And when you discuss how a lot of China's strategy is in opposition of that of the United States, what are the driving factors behind that? What causes China to have such a different vision? Well, I think the Chinese, um, you know, have several main motivations about kind of how they think about cyberspace in the digital world. I mean, the uh, one is the one that we kind of think about first is usually the 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 desire to control information, right? That the CCP uh, believes it should, you know, dominate the narratives uh, inside of China. It's worried about you know, uh, regime uh, stability and do- domestic legitimacy, and so you know, controls the flow of information inside of uh, inside of China. So, the, what's known as the Great Firewall. So that is a kind of a primary factor. You know, second, they have legitimate cybersecurity concerns, just like every other country that is um, becoming more reliant on information technologies. And um, they are worried about vulnerabilities, in particular to the U.S. And so there has been a longstanding concern that the U.S. has access to uh, Chinese networks and the Snowden revelations, uh, revelations from you know, Edward Snowden, the NSA contractor, about U.S. cyber operations really re- reinforced China's feelings that it was very vulnerable to those types of attacks. Um, China has a desire to, to uh, uh, develop the next generation of technologies. And so the kind of cybersecurity and technonationalism kind of overlap. So you want to replace um, Cisco and Microsoft and Apple and other uh, U.S. technology companies, both because you want Chinese firms in that space and you think it will make you more secure. Uh, and then fourth, you know, China just wants to, doesn't want to, you know, f- is afraid that the U.S. would kind of contain its room for maneuver and, and wants to do the same to the United States. It wants to be able to kind of counter the narrative that the United States uses internationally and so have a have a different uh, um, international set of uh, agreements and, and norms. So despite different states having different um agendas when it comes to cyberspace and the internet. Why is it so important to maintain an open, secure, resilient global internet? And what would that even look like? Yeah, I think it's a very good question. I think, you know, the U.S. is in a, and is in a very weird position these days. We don't, um, you know, the much of that kind of language came out in 2011, 2012, when I think there was a kind of uh, a very deeply held um optimism both in the U.S. government and the U.S. tech community about the impact of of these new technologies on the world, right? They were going to kind of strengthen democracy uh, and weaken autocracies. Um, And we had, you know, the Arab Spring and other types of events that seemed to um, buffer this view that, you know, technology would, would really kind of support and strengthen liberal institutions. Now, after the 2016 elections and increasing concern about Russian interference and disinformation, misinformation, plus just you know domestic uses of technology in the United States, I think there's that that narrative is, is is just not widely held. There's much more worry about the impact of technology on democracies and the and the tech firms and and you know, how much power they have, both economically and politically. 
So I, I think, um, you know, the U.S. still broadly argues that, you know, we want to make sure that people have access to technology, um, that a global internet is more economically efficient, that it, it is more likely to bring many of the gains. But we're certainly, I would say, um, less likely to criticize regulation broadly. Uh, the kind of age of laissez-faire uh, for the internet is is over, um, and so I think what the U.S. is trying to do is is say, well, the, it's it's not a question of regulation or no regulation now. It's a question of what type of regulation. So we want to make sure that the regulations that are adopted um, are open and transparent and accountable and kind of support. Uh, democratic forms of governance uh, and don't undermine those. Right, and just finally, with all the threats that that you just said to an open to an open global internet, how do you envision cyberspace to look in a future in which these threats are allowed to prevail that and which they coexist with, um, you know, efforts for an open internet? Yeah, I mean, I think we are moving to a much more fragmented internet um, based on. Um, you know, kind of these uh, more national internets. I mean, we see, you know, China from the beginning, but also Russia uh, is increasingly kind of adopting a Chinese model, both based on uh, regulation of its own um, companies, but also uh, um, regulation of foreign companies trying to develop its own technologies. Um, you know, India, uh, even though, you know, it's a, a country that we often uh, talk about how we need to work together to, to um, shape an open global internet also kind of uh, often uh, shuts down the internet, has its own platforms it would like to develop, is interested in data localization. So I, I think we're beginning to see a, um, a more fragmented internet where there are different technology stacks and different controls over data. Now, I don't think anyone really knows yet if that's going to be more secure or, or less secure. I think um, lots of nation states seem to think it's going to be more secure, um, but nobody really knows for sure. And, you know, the U.S., from what we can tell from the Snowden documents, doesn't seem to have had too much of a problem um, hacking into uh, Chinese systems, um, even if they are separate. So um, I, that, that, I think, is the future. I think, um, um, you know, the, the issue is, is can we make some progress on some of these norms we've been talking about? Um, and, you know, here there's been some, uh, hopeful signs, uh, at the UN, um, kind of a, a, a willingness of Russia, uh, and China and the United States to re-engage the process. Um, but, you know, there's so much of this stuff that is happening, as we've talked about before, is kind of, um, espionage or other, other types of operation below the threshold for the use of force. Um, so it's going to be, I think, uh, pretty conflictual in this space um, for, for quite a while. Dr. Siegel, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.